On October 3, 2013, the journal Science published a study confirming what many readers have believed all along. Reading literary fiction, even for just 20 minutes, that's 20 minutes period, not 20 minutes a day, can make you a better person. At least that's how the headlines spun it. Essentially, what the researchers found was that reading literary fiction improved people's theory of mind, which is the broad term psychologists use to describe our ability to take on and understand other people's perspectives. Theory of mind is all about empathy and social ability, two things most of us really want to be good at. And here was actual science indicating that we could get better at them by reading. Books make you a better person. Details at 11. It's the kind of story readers dream of, and it's a finding that launched a thousand studies. In the years since, the literary internet has seen countless variations. Being a reader makes you a better date. Being a reader makes you a better lover. Reading helps you live longer, be happier, and even reverses the signs of aging. Well, maybe not that last one, but you get the idea. The study in science was great news for readers' self-esteem, but what of its implications for the culture at large? Are enough people reading for the benefits to matter? And what would happen if we read less? And then there's the 600-pound gorilla in the room. How has the digital revolution affected all this? You could argue that Americans read more today than we ever have. It's widely estimated that we spend between three and five hours a day online, and most of that time is time we spend reading. Emails, texts, tweets, captions, news, and yes, even books. We consume more words per day than ever before, but is it the right kind of reading? Do we actually need to read? And what really is on the line? Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Jeff O'Neill. And I'm Rebecca Shinsky. On today's episode, a closer look at your brain on books and our attempt to answer the question, is technology killing reading and how worried should we be? This episode is sponsored by Evergreen Tidings from the Bomb Gardeners by Gretchen Anthony. A formidable matriarch goes to wild efforts to wrest back control of her family in this side-splitting dramedy set in the Midwest, perfect for fans of This Is Where I Leave You and The People We Hate at the Wedding. Delightful, surprising, and full of heart, Gretchen Anthony's Evergreen Tidings from the Bomb Gardeners brings to life a sparkling cast of characters whose struggle to understand one another illuminates the unbreakable bonds of family no matter how dysfunctional they can get. Published by Park Row Books and available now wherever books are sold, this is named a Best Book of Fall 28 by Pop Sugar. Kirkus calls it a stunning debut, an intricately satisfying story of love and understanding that is both full of nostalgia and surprising optimism. It's a great holiday gift book. Gretchen Anthony is a Minnesota-based writer and a humorist whose work has been featured on scarymommy.com, medium.com, and therightlife.com. She's also spent decades as a ghostwriter and has written for some of the best personal brands in the United States, from CEOs to doctors and startup superstars to barbecue pros. Evergreen Tidings from the Bomb Gardeners is her first novel. Thanks again to Evergreen Tidings from the Bomb Gardeners by Gretchen Anthony for sponsoring this episode of Annotated. Okay, before we dive into the burning questions about what technology is doing to reading now and how that will affect the future, let's start at the very beginning. Why do humans need to read? Well, the answer is trickier than you might expect, because brace yourselves, we were never intended to read at all. That's right. Evolutionarily speaking, reading is neither natural nor innate. It's a surprise, a party trick of neurocircuitry. One of the almost semi-miraculous aspects of being a human with a human brain is that we are given an 
extra design principle that allows us to rearrange our original parts to go beyond our own hardware, if you will. This is Marianne Wolf, a cognitive neuroscientist who has spent decades studying and writing about the reading brain. The new cognitive functions in the last 10,000 years of evolution, which of course is just a blink, is the introduction of two very connected functions, literacy and numeracy, which both rely on the original parts of vision and language and cognition. Her work is built on the idea that, though our brains were never meant to read, there are enormous benefits to this unexpected twist of evolution. What is so fascinating and what is so good about the act of of having new cognitive functions is that it can make optimal use of our original functions and go beyond them. We can, through the act of reading, develop whole new networks. So humans have been sharing information and ideas for as long as humans have been around. And it's not like we didn't progress before we figured out how to write. There is a rich and fascinating body of research about oral storytelling and transmission of knowledge. So reading has both an individual and a societal function in terms of memory and what can be consolidated and go beyond. It allows us a base so that we, both as individuals and as a collective, don't have to rediscover the wheel every time. But it was the development of written language and the attendant ability to read it that not only rewired our brains, but opened up new possibilities for innovation. Reading as written language takes what we know, adds something new, and propels us to new horizons. So the very circuit of reading, its ability to both connect the older parts and develop whole new work networks becomes the very basis of ever more elaborated and sophisticated, inferential, deductive, ultimately critically analytic processes. So it's not so much that reading is a basic human need. Blasphemy! I know, I know. Reading may be good for us, but it's not in the same way that fresh air and exercise are. Right. It's because recorded knowledge and the neurological networks that give us the ability to read and process information are what allow us to build on what we know and innovate more efficiently. It's a societal good. And that's not the only one. There's this iterative intellectual process that is going on, but there's this other aspect that we can put under empathy, perspective taking. By the way, while we're talking about empathy, researchers recently failed to replicate the findings from that famous 2013 study. Reading does improve our social cognition, but literary fiction is no more powerful than any other genre. Anyway, back to Dr. Wolf. So empathy is thought and feeling. We are adding the sum of that to this great, sophisticated mix of, that we call critical analysis. We are really involving our, our minds and our hearts, if you will, our science and our poetic sides are simultaneously at the almost end of the reading act of deep reading. At the very end of these deep reading processes, we can have an epiphany, an insight that we have never personally had before. Even more rare is when that insight, whether in science, in poetry, in literature, becomes the basis 
for an insight for others that can be used that goes beyond not only the information, but what we as individuals had known before or what society collectively had known before. So that's what's on the line. Just art, science, and human connection. Cool. Cool, cool. This episode is also sponsored by Penguin Random House Audio. Keep up with your book club reading by listening to the audiobook. Audiobooks are the perfect complement to your busy schedule. Listen to new releases such as The Kennedy Debutante by Carrie Marr and read by Julia Whalen, and you can enjoy a whole new book club experience. For more listening suggestions, visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot. Thanks again to Penguin Random House Audio for sponsoring this episode. To recap, human brains were never intended to read, but they figured it out anyway. And in the process, we got a way to store knowledge, thereby freeing up room to think new thoughts, to be creative and innovative, and to understand each other's experiences more deeply. Reading may not be necessary for our physical health, but it sure contributes to foundational components of society. And that brings us to the next question. If we accept that reading is necessary for the maintenance and furthering of the world we live in, should we be worried about how recent major developments, especially digital technology, are affecting it? Well, despite what the headlines might have you believe, there's not one clear way to begin to try to answer this question. Ah, yes. Nuance. Everyone's favorite. While it would be wonderful to have a simple answer, this just really isn't a simple question. There are several components to look at, and lucky for us, there's data. Let's start with the rise of digital technology. When the Pew Research Center began tracking Americans' internet usage in early 2000, just over 50% of American adults were online. Today, that number is nearly 90%. So there's the general presence of the internet in people's lives, and then there are the specific ways we access it. Of course, what I'm talking about is smartphones. This revolution began in June 2007 with the release of the first iPhone. We no longer had to be tethered to a computer to get online. The Pew Center began tracking smartphone usage a few years later. In 2011, only 35% of Americans were using a smartphone. In the last seven years, that number has more than doubled to 77%. So 90% of us are online, and more than three-quarters of us are using smartphones. We carry computers in our pockets, and we use them all day to do all kinds of things that aren't reading books. You'd think this would mean the death knell for literary culture, right? You mean it isn't. Here's where it gets juicy. Since 2011, the same period in which smartphone ownership has more than doubled, the number of Americans who read a book in any format has decreased, but only by 5%. And the top line number is still pretty solid. The drop was from 79% in 2011 to 74% now, and it's actually been holding steady for a few years. Overall, in the last decade or so, technology usage is way up and reading is a little bit down. So the headlines correlating the rise of the internet with the fall of books aren't technically wrong. But they're not necessarily right either, especially if we measure the health of literary culture by more than just the number of people who read. One of the major public reading institutions in American culture, as you well know, is the American Public Library. And for the most part, uh, the activity that the American Public Library supports is access to printed materials. I can tell you in 2018, there are more public library access sites than there have ever been before. This is Wayne Wiegand, an historian who has spent his career writing about American libraries. You may remember him from our episode about Andrew Carnegie. 
he is not worried about Americans' interest in accessing the written word, and this isn't his first rodeo. In 1980, there were people who were looking at information technologies being introduced in day-to-day practices who were predicting, first, the demise of the book by the turn of the century, second, the demise of the public library by the turn of the century. I can tell you when the radio was introduced, public libraries were worried that people would be sitting at home in their living rooms, listening to the radio and getting information from them instead of coming to local public libraries, checking out books, et cetera, et cetera. It didn't happen. I can tell you the same thing with television. When it was introduced in the post-World War II, public librarians worried that people would stay home just watching their television sets and not come to the public library. That didn't happen either. But the Internet and smartphones are different, right? This time is surely different. Or maybe not. And the same thing with the introduction of microcomputers and information technological devices like uh, iPhones, iPads, etc. Circulation has not necessarily gone down in public libraries across the country as an indicator of reading. So this panic that a shiny new technology is going to seduce us away from books is just a thing humans do? We freak out about the health of reading while reading actually stays pretty consistent? It sure sounds that way. If you look at the history of reading, there are a lot of people who were kind of non-readers. It didn't mean they were illiterate. They just chose not to read necessarily. That group of non-readers, many of them have moved into these other forms of communication where before it had been kind of face-to-face communication. It had been people sitting next to each other in uh, public places like churches, etc. So I think a fraction of our forms of communication has moved into those new technological uh, devices, but that the reading public has remained fairly stable. A recent study by the National Endowment for the Arts supports this theory. It found that 52% of Americans read for leisure in 2017, down from 54.6% in 2012. That's a decline of just 1.9%. When you think about how much bigger and more ubiquitous the internet is now than it was just six years ago, that sounds like pretty good news. It's certainly not the sky is falling. If the past is any teacher, we are going to find these new information devices, locate them in our day-to-day lives, and accommodate them just like people accommodated the radio, television, and uh, other uh, computer-assisted information things in the past. Okay, let's call it good for the time being for how much we're reading. What about the quality of our reading material and our critical thinking skills? The circuitry Dr. Wolf described earlier that at its best leads to art, epiphany, and innovation. This is where it gets sticky. When we're screen reading, we are more than likely using those parts of our circuit which advantage fast processing, voluminous uh, processing, multitasking, and multi uh, sources of information. The reality is that we are using our skim mode for just about everything. We are using our skimming mode for trying to understand complex issues. Dr. Wiegand, though confident about the outlook for libraries and reading habits in the digital world, has a related concern. My major worry right now is is 
are people's ability to critically think. And I think that's written all over the public discourse and is made manifest in the events that you see today. The problem isn't so much that we read differently when we're online. It's that we seem to port the online surface-level reading quality, which is perfectly fine for answering email and scrolling your Twitter feed, over into areas that really should get a deeper kind of attention. Uh, So we're not just worried about the theory of mind, our ability to understand and empathize. We're worried about the life of the mind. Right. Or as Dr. Wolf puts it, the life of contemplation, which is made possible by the neurocircuitry of the deep reading mode. That's a lofty phrase, and it does call to mind a certain romantic conservatism about books and reading. A lot of people are just tremendously disappointed, discouraged, and worried that they no longer have the capacity for that immersive mode of reading. It's that sanctuary, that very precious place where we can go and be reflective and contemplative and just have our best thoughts. But that's not the only way to slice it. Sure, immersive reading is its own individual reward, but critical thinking has collective consequences. It affects how we engage in civic life. But if the radio didn't kill reading, or presumably its attendant critical thinking skills, and television didn't do it either, and the percentage of Americans who read for fun is basically holding steady, is this moment actually different? Or does it just feel different because every moment of technological change feels significant to the people who live through it? Our experts have a couple of perspectives on that. Now, it doesn't mean that in the past we've done this all that well. If you look, for example, at the uh, presidential election in 1860, you see the same kind of conspiracy theories writ all over print. But these new devices allow the transfer of misinformation that remains unchecked to cause me great concern. So maybe the worry really isn't about what's happening to books at all, but about the combined effects of digital technology's impact on what we read, streams of information, and ideas from sources all along the spectrum of credibility, and how we read. More information than ever before, which is, as Dr. Wiegand pointed out, often unchecked, plus more time in the skimming mode equals, well, you can see how the dominoes might fall. And they fall all the way up to the highest offices in the land. That doesn't mean that Twitter, just like email, doesn't have a wonderful purpose. And it's a beautiful set of purposes. But it is not the Twitter brain that we want making decisions. Because we need to have the full circuitry being utilized and knowing it is being utilized by those who are in whatever leadership position around the world. The stakes feel high because they are high. But they've always been high. Just art, science, human connection, and the future of society. Which brings us back to where we started. How worried should we be? I think we're in this moment where we really don't know. We don't know yet. And that uncertainty can be scary, but maybe it doesn't have to be. After all, we've been here before, first with fears that the radio would kill books, and then that television would do the same. There's no way to know yet what the long-term impacts of digital culture will be. But reading has been more durable and more resilient than we've given it credit for. And that has to count for something. This episode of Annotated was written and produced by me, Rebecca Shinsky. Sound editing and design by Kyle O'Neill, with special production assistance by Jeremy Desmond. 
Special thanks to Dr. Marianne Wolf. Her newest book, Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World, is out now and available wherever books are sold. Thanks also to Dr. Wayne Wiegand. His book, A Part of Our Lives, A People's History of the American Public Library, is a fascinating overview from colonial days to the present. If you have a minute, we would love it if you could rate and review Annotated on Apple Podcasts. Takes just a minute and helps new listeners find the show. One last thing. If you're on Twitter and or Instagram, you can follow Annotated there. I'm working on publishing something every day-ish through January 1st as an experiment. On Twitter, we're annotated underscore FM. And on Instagram, annotated FM. The last couple of weeks, stuff from the Carnegie episode had a picture of the library we described at the beginning of episode 16. Uh, Carnegie Library, that got turned into a bed and breakfast. All kinds of interesting stuff that could make it into the show and work great on Twitter and Instagram. Links in the show notes. Until next month, read something great. Thank you.